Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. About a week or so ago, uh, Pastor David needed some, and I got permission to tell the story. Uh, he, he needed some firewood. And so he went on Facebook and found a place that, or, or a guy that was selling some firewood. firewood. It was already cut and treated and, and ready to go, ready to be burned. And so uh, he met up with the guy. He said he drove out towards Valonia. He went out there and uh, he got what he could filled up the back of his truck there, and then not all of it fits. And so there was just a, a remnant there, a little bit left over. So he just kind of left that and uh, decides to uh, drive away. He, he tells the guy, no worries about it. I don't need that. So he drives away and he gets down the street just a little bit, not too far down the street, just a few moments. He got a text message from the guy. And it was a picture of the, the remnant wood, just the leftover wood there. And the picture, and then it says, he couldn't carry all of it in his little truck, is uh, what the text message said. It was not intended to go to David, all right? It was intended to go to somebody else, right? Making fun of David's little truck. And so as much as we enjoyed this, what I would say to you guys is that it's a full-size V8 truck, all right? I, I, don't, I mean, yes, there are bigger trucks, but this is a big enough truck to carry however much firewood you need. He said that when he got, he's got one of these... Um, kind of those trifold uh, bed covers on the back. You know what I'm talking about? He's got one of those and said, when he pulled up, the guy walked out and said, does the little tarp thing move? You know, and so <laughs> from the get-go, this guy did not like David's truck. And, and I need firewood too, but I can't take going out there and hearing whatever he thinks about my truck. So I'm just going to get it from Kroger or something, you know. But we do that. We have uh, this value system where we think the biggest and the strongest and the fastest is the best. And that can translate to a number of areas in our lives. We will use this system inadvertently in conversations when we're talking about things, when we're explaining things to other people. You might be talking about a band, let's say like a musical band or a group or something. And uh, you describe it to somebody and they'll say, oh, I, I've never heard of it. And you're like, well, it's kind of like, and then you'll say the name of a band that everybody knows, right? It's kind of like whatever. So you're using your you're borrowing the credibility of the big famous one to sort of define the one you have. Or conversely, let's say that you're talking about a restaurant, one back home that you really like, like your favorite restaurant. And uh, somebody's like, oh, is it like, and they'll say the name of some chain and you get, you get insulted. You're like, no, it's not like that. That's rubbish. This is good. You know, that sort of thing. I like this one. You know, we have this idea where this bigger is better. If it's not known, it's not good. Or sometimes it can flip. We know that known and unknown does not directly translate into value. We also know that large does not mean best or better, and small does not mean worse. And yet, we are constantly drawn by the best-selling authors, the richest bank, the fastest car, you know? Talk to somebody or you're in the market for a car. You go in there and the, the salesman says, this car can go zero to 60 this fast, you know? You go, I need that. And they're, they're, you don't need that. There's no scenario in which you need to go that fast, that fast, all right? It's not a real thing, you know? But, you know, I need that. I want the fastest thing. 
I want the biggest thing. I want the best thing. And all of that's there. And I guess that's fine. It's fine to some degree, right? If we don't know the authors, then the one that sells the most probably is good. But what happens when we turn that value system inward? When we start to judge ourselves by that same system? And we think, well, the impact that I can make is insignificant, so I am insignificant. Do you ever feel like that you are less than, you are a nobody from an unknown town with an unknown family and no money to speak of? That you have next to no talents that are marketable and you're not the kind of guy that turns the head of women? So you feel like you're insignificant. You ever feel that way? And it can be the other way around. We sort of use this value system to say that myself and the impact that I can make is either significant or insignificant based on the weight. What if we conflate the weight of our impact with the significance and then decide that it's just not worth contributing? Oh, because I can only play this small part, because I only play this position or in this small way, or if I'm only on this team, then I'm not valuable. I don't have a worth. I don't have a, a, a great impact. The first two verses of Micah chapter five, take that value system and then just destroy it. Just rip it apart and break it into pieces. So successfully does it do that, that it causes me to wonder why on earth we would ever still entertain the idea that small and weak and poor is insignificant and that only the strong and the powerful are important enough to care about, to pursue, or to be like. Why would we ever hold that value system when we know clearly that that's not reality? So what we're going to talk about today, looking at what God can do with the insignificant. But before we do, let's pray. You pray for me and I will pray for you. God, this morning we, we come to you as friends and family and strangers, those online, those in person. And we just pray that as we open the scriptures, that, that our minds would be open, our hearts would be open, that, that the standard by which you judge things would become our standard. So God, I pray that today we are challenged in the way that we, we tend to detract from the small. And instead, God, we would see the great work that you do in small things and in small places with what seems to be small people. God, bless us today. Give us the grace, the strength, and the faith to change where we need to. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Micah chapter 5, 1 and 2 says this. Now, daughter who is under attack, you slash yourself in grief. A siege is set against us. They are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with the rod. But Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity and from ancient times. This text here is maybe unfamiliar to you, but one of the more fascinating things about it is that it is probably one of the most well-known Christmas prophecies in the Bible. Right? When you read the Old Testament, this is probably one of the most well-known prophecies that come true in the birth of Jesus. Maybe um, that he will be pierced for our iniquities and, and crushed for our transgressions in Isaiah is a more familiar prophecy. But this one, as far as Christmas, is the way it goes. This one is the most fulfilling uh, or the most familiar Christmas prophecy. And I'm not going to talk about Christmas this morning, although I don't feel bad about it. I can bring it up a little bit um, because I know that some of you have done the very un-American thing of putting your tree up already, right? Anybody in here want to confess to the sin of putting your Christmas tree up? And I have a bunch of people, Donnie, um, I have a bunch of people 
I have a bunch of people that have told me that if you, if you paid three wise men to put up your Christmas lights and they, they go out early, that's fine. That's, that's forgiven. It's in the constitution that your lights can go up early. It's just the tree. You can't put that tree up till Friday. I'm kidding. I don't care. I don't really care if you do. But this text is in the birth story. It's the sort of story, it's the sort of text that has inspired Christmas songs like O Little Town of Bethlehem. You know that song, right? Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 2. When King Herod heard this, that a new king, a baby king, was being born, he was deeply disturbed. He was upset. He was mad. And all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he asked them, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? That's what he said. Hey, everybody, listen, where is this Messiah supposed to be? And they said, in Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written in the prophets. This is what they quote. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. The most famous Christmas prophecy. This is a whole lot about our lives before and after and during the Christmas season. Let's take a look at that and we'll, we'll talk about it. The first part that we should understand here is this first portion of chapter, or verse two. It says, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. Micah has already been speaking to the cities, okay? And not to the citizens of the city. He's actually talking to the city, personifying the city. So thus far, he's been talking to Jerusalem and he's called her a daughter. He's told her that she is vulnerable, that she's weak, that she is as a woman may be in, in, in childbirth, that she is vulnerable, unable to defend herself. He's been talking about her in this way, which is shocking. It's disturbing because Jerusalem was the capital city. It was the shining beacon on a hill. And so to call Jerusalem weak was to really call the strongest, the biggest, the best vulnerable, right? So he's been referring to Jerusalem in this way. And then uh, verse two actually in Hebrew begins with a contrasting word. It says, but it's like um, daughter Jerusalem, you are weak and vulnerable. Boy, let's, let's, let's talk about Bethlehem. Look at Bethlehem. Bethlehem, he says to her, he says, you are small among the clans of Judah. Very clearly here, the insignificance of Bethlehem is, is front and center. It's center stage. It's the main point that he's trying to get across here. Bethlehem was located like five miles outside of Jerusalem. So even though it was small and insignificant in its own right, it was located so close to the capital city that nobody even really ever paid attention to it. There was no reason to pay attention to it. It was a stop sign in between Jerusalem and Negev, two places that you would travel. This is the place that you would stop to use the restroom or to get some um, Chick-fil-A or something like that. That's, that's where you would stop. It's not a town that you would want to go to. It was insignificant. Halfway between two places you would want to go. In Nehemiah chapter 11, and in Joshua chapter 15, the author writes down a number of the uh, Israeli cities. And it says, this town had such and such family living there. And this town had such and such family. It was sort of a record, a, 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 an official document that said, this is who was living in our cities. And even though Bethlehem was established before both of those accounts were made, in neither account is Bethlehem mentioned. It's just that insignificant. Nobody cares about Bethlehem. We have, uh, we have this like, we have this affection towards Bethlehem. We do. 
right? Modern readers of the Bible. We think of it like Stars Hollow or Eureka Springs. Like it's just, it's this cute little town, right? With, uh, with like, like um, you know, I don't know, people singing and, and Christmas shops and stuff like that. That's, that's the way that we think of Bethlehem. But to them, it was completely insignificant. Nothing to talk about. Nobody, nobody cares about Bethlehem. Nobody goes to Bethlehem. If you're from Texas, there's a town like this. It's called Waco. And um, <laughs> if you're not from Texas, you might have it on your bucket list to travel to Waco. And and as Texans, for the life of us, cannot figure out why anybody wants to go to that dirty little town with that dirty little river in that um, subpar athletic department. And so nobody wants to go there, you know? And um, until Chip and JoJo got a hold of it and put shiplap all over it, you know? <laughs> and then you gotta admit, it's kind of cute. It's kind of nice. It's got a bakery and there's a restaurant and there's silos and all that kind of stuff. And so people like it and you've, and you've been there, right? You have people go there and it's nice. The way that Waco was is the way that Bethlehem was thought of. It's just, it's just where you stop to use the restroom between Dallas and Austin. It's not, it's not a place anybody goes. That's how Bethlehem was, but it was not without its claim to fame. Before I moved to Arkansas, uh, or in the move to Arkansas, I would travel to and from Dallas, and I would go through this one town regularly, Hope, Arkansas. And Hope, Arkansas is one of the towns outside or in Arkansas that I knew of uh, before I was in Arkansas, right? I knew of Hope, Arkansas, not because of the city, but because of who was from there. Turns out that this little, this little town has uh, one United States president and now three um, Arkansas governors that have come from that, that town. So, so it had significance because not of the, the town itself, but because of who came from there. Bethlehem is similar because it's from that town that David came from, the second king, the greatest king came from there. But even in that, we need to be very careful to understand that even though David, the great king of Israel, comes from Bethlehem, when the prophet went to Bethlehem, he almost passed David up. Why? Because David was insignificant. Because he was the shortest and the smallest, the weakest and the youngest. They didn't even bring him out. He had all of his big brothers out there. and They were like, surely one of these will be the king, the sovereign of our nation. No. It's the insignificant one. So even though Bethlehem does have a claim to fame, that claim to fame was the small guy. He was the little guy. And so in all of this, we see the insignificance of Bethlehem. The other thing to keep in mind is that every biblical reference, nearly every biblical reference to Bethlehem is either tragic or sad. First time that we see Bethlehem mentioned, it was one of the matriarchs. Um, passed away and they buried her there. That, that's how you're introduced to Bethlehem. Mama died and that's where we buried her, right? So we, we start her there. Next, you see that one of the uh, bad, false priests was from Bethlehem. Walking around acting like he was a real priest. He was not. He was from Bethlehem. Then there's another story about a woman, a particular woman that was from there and her death, she was tragically murdered. And then um, what happens after that is even more tragic and disgusting and weird. And so that's Bethlehem. Later on, after Jesus is born, one of the other references to Bethlehem is that Herod king, uh, killed all of the young children that were in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is tragic. It's sad. It's got a dark, sketchy past. Those dark, sad streets, cold and isolating, dangerous and chilling. 
This is the town of Bethlehem. In all of this conversation, this text is zeroed in on a town that gives us very little to think of it, if we think of it at all. That's Bethlehem, but it's in that setting. It's in that setting of insignificance and sad and brokenness that the very next words come forth. It says, one will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity and from ancient times. This one, let's zero in on the one. Let's talk about the one that will come from the town that's insignificant. And before we move too far away from Bethlehem and talk about the one, I want to point this word out here, Ephrathah. It's not a word you probably are very comfortable with. It's sort of the region that Bethlehem is found in. It's to specify this particular Bethlehem. There were more than one Bethlehem in antiquity. And so this one is to say that one, not the other one, not that other one over there, but this particular Bethlehem. And that's significant. It would be like if I was to stand here and talk to you about the the city of Nashville or Atlanta, Washington, Athens, Dallas, or Houston. If I were to say the names of those cities, I would need to be specific because all of those are towns in Arkansas. And yet None of you thought of towns in Arkansas when I said that. Or maybe most of you did not think of towns in Arkansas when I thought that we would have to be specific. It's not something I would have to do if I was to refer to Wiener, Bald Knob, Goobertown, Flippin, or Booger Hollow. Those would be not be, when I say those, we know exactly where those are, right? I know, what's, I know what state that's in. It's a specific, it's a specific Bethlehem, a specific one. And this is significant, not only in the location of this Bethlehem, we want the Bethlehem that is in Judah or Judea, that region there, but it's, it's also significant in the idea of promise keeping. It's one thing to make a prophecy that a ruler will come from a Bethlehem. It's much more specific to say that from that Bethlehem, the stop sign, right? In between the two cities, this small, tiny, insignificant, to go all chips in on that one. From there, hundreds of years from now, will come a ruler. The one will come from there. That's huge. It gives us validity and trust in the scriptures because that's exactly what he's doing there. He's saying from that specific one will come a ruler. The one that will come out of Bethlehem is a ruler, a leader, a king. This is gonna be one that reigns. And this also makes you think of David. David was a king that came from Bethlehem. So this is a king that comes from Bethlehem. And in that mention, what we need to be reminded of is not specifically the person of David, but the God of David. There's a very specific theology. There's a very specific idea and it's called um, the, the promises that God made. One of the promises that God makes to David is that he would always have a ruler over his people from David's family, okay? That's a, that's a particular promise. And so in this, what God is saying is the promise I made to David, I'm gonna keep that. I am a promise making and a promise keeping God. You can mark it down. It's going to happen. That's what he says. And that's what he's emphasizing in this idea. And listen, they need a ruler. They need a king. They need a shepherd. They need a leader to stand up for them. Thus far, like I've talked about, when it talks about Jerusalem, it's talking about how weak she is and how in need she is, that she is completely vulnerable. In verse one, it says that the leader was struck, that their judge was struck Um, on the cheek with a rod, meaning that she is there vulnerable and in danger 
And the leaders that she has are weak and impotent. They are powerless against the attacks. And so she, the people, they need a ruler to step forward that would be strong and protecting. One that would walk up and protect and provide. Look at verse three, it says that, um, that she will no longer be abandoned and that her leaders will return. In verse four, it says that he will rule by God's strength and that they will live securely. In verse five, it says that they will be at peace. But the particular characteristic that I wanna point out is the shepherd. It says this ruler will come and in verse four, it says, and then he will shepherd the people. He will shepherd. Now, this, anytime this comes up, this is sort of like, piques my interest. This is sort of the Bible nerd that I really get into. My doctorate is written on this idea, the shepherd king, the shepherd ruler. And we don't have time right now to go through uh, what I wrote in my doctoral paper, nor do you care, all right? But the bottom line is this, that leadership is best done and best seen in scripture through the model of the shepherd, not the king, not the priests, not the prophets, not the soldiers, not a, not a CEO or an entrepreneur, but leadership in scripture is best illustrated. And in fact, I believe intended to be modeled after the shepherds. The shepherds are the illustration of leadership. You see this in David, most of all, but you also see it in Moses and in Jesus and in Peter. Remember the first time that you're introduced to David, he is taking care of his father's sheep. When he fights Goliath, he fights Goliath, not as a soldier, but as a shepherd boy with shepherd's utensils. When he is uh, christened, when he's crowned the king of Israel, God says, and this will be the king. He will shepherd my people. It's the same sort of storyline that you see with Moses, the same sort of stuff that goes on with Jesus, who was never a shepherd by trade, and yet he stands in front of his people, his disciples, and he says, I am the good shepherd. Peter, who also was never a shepherd by trade, tells the pastors of the early church to shepherd God's people. In fact, the word pastor is shepherd. It's the same word. The model for leadership in scripture is shepherd. And yet we think of shepherds as meek and mild. We think of them as like doting, like they, like they, they walk around hugging lambs. Like this is the idea of a shepherd. And yet in scripture, that is not what we get. We don't get meek and mild, we get strong and brave. We get the one that goes out in front, the one that kills lions and kills bears and provides, right? Who stays out and keeps watch over their sheep in the night, in the dark, in the danger. That's the model of leadership. But because that's not what we're looking for, that's not what we try to get. That's not what we model in our lives. And that's not what we appreciate in our leaders. A sort of strong taking a step forward. What God says, what Micah predicts is that this shepherd will lead his people in the strength of the Lord and security, that this shepherd, this ruler will be a shepherd. So in other words, Bethlehem has some significance, not because a king came from there, but because a shepherd did. And another one will come. See, the way that verse two ends is this origin or this ancient of days. It says that his origin is from antiquity and from ancient times. Meaning this, in case there was any sort of confusion, that from the insignificant, tiny, broken down dark streets of Bethlehem would come a ruler, a king, a shepherd. And he is none other than God himself. 
He is Jesus. That has always been and always will be. Jesus will take on the form of humanity and step into humanity to save humanity. Here's the deal. The bottom line here is that God has this habit or this practice of working within the small and what seems unimportant. That's how God works. That's what he does. That in the most consequential moment in human history, God chose, promised, and worked through the small, broken, shady town of Bethlehem. And it's from Bethlehem that the one comes. Hear me on this. Following Jesus is not a college football recruitment. He isn't concerned if you are a five-star or an all-American. You don't have to be, on, uh, be a top performer to be redeemed. You don't have to know all the right things to say or the right things to do to be and to act like what would Jesus do. You don't have to be completely cleaned up and perfect. That you come to Jesus in your brokenness and in your hurt and in your pain. You come to Jesus with your shady past and all of your baggage and all of your luggage. You come to him and you meet him there in Bethlehem and he will meet you there in Bethlehem. And it is from that spot not perfect shining Jerusalem, but in the brokenness that he meets humanity. And he looks at you and he stands next to you and he says, I love this one. This one is mine. This is my brother. This is my sister. I am with her. I am with him in front of all humanity. This one is mine. I will shepherd her. I will lead him. I will protect. That's the good news of Jesus. Not that you have to be good to match his goodness, but because we are not, and he is still good. So if you have questions about that, man, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to introduce you to that sort of Jesus. I'd love to help you meet him. Here's the application this morning. Here's the thing that you could easily apply and take out on your life. Don't ignore the small things. And don't despise the big things. Don't ignore the small things. In our world that is obsessed with large and better and best and biggest, we shouldn't ignore the small things. Don't discount the small things that you can do. You might think, I can only give like $5 or $10 a week to my church. It's so small, it's insignificant. Why should I even do it? Don't discount that. You think I can only serve one hour a month, two hours a month. I can only do this small thing. Don't discount that. It is in those small things that God is doing a big thing in your life and in and through us. David was the mighty king of Israel. And he was a shepherd just obeying his father, doing what he was supposed to do. The very small things. You know, when that bush was on fire, when it spoke and it said Moses, that Moses was on the backside of the desert taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. There's that woman that just had a few cents to her name and she gave it. There was another one that just had one bottle of perfume and she gave it. There was another man who was broken and diseased, isolated and rejected by all of civilization and Jesus healed him and he turned around and he gave the only thing he could give, gratitude. It's not the small thing that's insignificant. Do not discount the small thing and do not miss the small things that God is doing in your life. That he's constantly working through very small acts of obedience. The Christian life is a long walk. It's not a rocket launch. It takes time. 
small, consistent acts of obedience. Fawcett wrote, out of seemingly, or out of seeming littleness and weakness, God has perfect strength. The Apostle Paul completely agrees. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in our world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. That's just the way that God works. It's just the way that God does it. At the same time, don't despise the big things. Don't run off the other side of the road either. Small things are not bad. Big things are not bad. Bethlehem was small and insignificant, but Jesus certainly is not. God works through those small things to do big things. The joy and the peace comes from seeing that God does big things in small moments. The small contribution that you make to your church and the service that you make to your church, even though it is small, it is part of this giant kingdom of peace that is expanding all across the planet at a rate and at a scale and at a breadth that we cannot fathom. Your small thing is a part of a giant movement. Your small contribution is a part of something that matters. The daily small steps of obedience are recreating you in the image of the Son of God, which is not small. That makes an impact on the lives of others and gives glory to God in a brilliant way. Let's be much more concerned with small steps of value than we are with giant leaps of generosity. Can you imagine what we can do if we all contribute just the little that we can to the great mission of God. For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above, while mortals sleep and angels keep their watch of wondering love. O morning stars together, proclaim thy holy birth and praises sing to God the King and peace to men on earth. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above the deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.